Tzalechaim Lechaim. So um, I was asked to speak for half an hour, uh, as everybody is, and I was told that uh, the reason that they called me was I, I've written a new book about uh, stories that happened within our family, um, which was uh, done at the request of my children and grandchildren. Their argument was that those people that had um, interaction with the Rebbe had an obligation to pass it on. And I saw in the blurb that one of the things that is trying to be achieved in this 24-hour Fabringen is that um, there should be some uh, attention drawn to the river's reach. So <clears throat> um, there are many stories which uh, I could repeat from the book, um, but the one that I think I will uh, is because of this thing that caught my eye about the river's reach. Now, before, before I do, I'm not sure who the audience is, and I'm not sure what level of, uh, of education or involvement the audience has. So before I just tell you this story, there's one point that, there are two points that I'd like to make quickly. One is that, The Rebbeim in Chabad until our river, and I'm including in, the, in that, that up, right up to and including the Friedika River, were very um, circumspect about miracles. It was not encouraged to, uh, to investigate miracles. And indeed, um, the Rebbeim went to some length lengths on occasions to camouflage the miracles that um, they, they were involved in. So much so that we have a fascinating exchange of letters between the river and the Friedika River and the previous Lubavitcher River on this issue of miracles. Um, unfortunately, I don't think it's in English, so I don't know what the audience's access to it is, but as a quick summary, I'll just tell you this, that the Rebbe questioned very respectfully, of course, uh, the Friedrich Rebbe's position on this. And, and his point was that as the ashes of Yidden were shoveled out of the gas chambers of Europe and the best, and we lost many of the best of our people, the road back for non-affiliated Jews um, would be easier if they could be shown supernatural in incidents. And the Friediger Rebbe is hesitant in his replies on this, but the Rebbe is very, very keen on that. And everybody knows that throughout his Nasius, the miracles flowed openly for everybody to see. And that's the first point I want to make. The second point I want to make is that um, I'm personally upset 
at those people who repeat river stories and allow hair to grow on. I'm sure they do it for noble reasons. I'm sure they believe that they are helping to market the river by exaggerating um, aspects of their stories. I personally believe it's not, it, it's not helpful. The river, um, the river was the river and he doesn't need any, any false wrapping. So before I tell a story about the river in terms of our family, I need to preface it by explaining that what you're going to hear is the absolute bone truth with nothing added whatsoever in, in, at any level. So I have many to choose from because I've written a book which has, I, I, I don't even remember how many, I think 16 or 17 stories. But the one that, um, that is fascinating in terms of the river's reach was uh, about a man called Brian, I call him Rimbound in the book, it's not his real name, QC. I don't know if you know, if, if the general uh, public around the world knows what a QC is, but in Australia and Britain, um, the, the legal profession is divided into solicitors and barristers. Barristers are more posher than solicitors. And amongst barristers, there are ordinary barristers and those that are called QCs, Queen's Council. And they are the most elevated uh, level of the profession under the judges. So I'm a solicitor and I went to law school with this guy, Brian, we'll call him Brian Rimbaud. And um, we were, and I'm old, so we were at law school a long time ago in the 60s, in the early 60s. And um, I'll try and describe him to you. He was, uh, first of all, I need to explain that the world was a very different place in 1960 to 1966. Um, people were very conservative. Good manners were important. Um, people dressed conservatively. Long hair was unheard of until the Beatles, which was later. Um, and life was very regimented and, um, and organizations and traditions and all of that stuff was, was very important. It, it was, it's only after Woodstock and, and uh, which started as a revolution and went on as a expanding new way of life that, that took a broom to all of these things. But at the time, everything was enshrined in very fixed, um, in very fixed conservative structures. So, and Brian Rame, Brian Rimbound was a very real example of this. Um, he was uh, he dressed neatly and tidily in the then compulsory suit and tie. Um, he he had sh sh mandatory short hair, very good manners, spoke um, in an educated accent, went to a good school, uh, went to you know, and we were at university together, and he was in all in all ways um, 
an advertisement for that time in life. And we were, we were, we were quite close friends. When we graduated, I became a solicitor and opened a legal practice in Double Bay, which was a commercial legal practice. And he went to the bar and as a barrister and, and uh, we both did well, but our paths separated. Although we were very good friends at university, um, our paths separated because I was busily doing commercial uh, work and he was in the, in the courts and in more and more rarefied uh, aspects of the courts, ending up in what's called the equity courts, which is the most um, prestigious place for a, a barrister to, to ply his trade. So, and, and probably, uh, probably 20 years have gone by since, since we graduated. I used to brief him occasionally, but our paths separated. And during that period of time, I changed completely. Um, I, I, after we got married, um, Chabad got hold of me. Uh, I loved it. I responded dramatically um, and began to learn and slowly to observe. And by the time this story, I'm telling you this story, we were already, my wife and I had already uh, changed our way of life entirely. Um, we were now totally from and uh, although it took a long while for us to make that journey, we were now totally from and um, I had a I looked different. I had yamuka and a beard, and uh, and I would have had very little in common with Brian anymore. Now, this story has a few shelves to it. So, on the first shelf, let me tell you that we went to we were we were members of Machni Yisrael. Machni Yisrael was a uh, for those of you who, um, everybody's heard of it, I'm sure, that's listening, but it was a uh, basically a businessmen's club. We didn't really understand that at the time. We don't have time for me to explain that, although I do that in the book in another story. But um, we, Makhni Israel, to cut it short, allowed you for giving a certain amount of money in Sadaka to have uh, Yechidus with the Rebbe one-to-one and it was twice a year for five years. So there were 10 Yechidison and, uh, and you paid for that in and these, and you paid that in two lots per year. And it was in the, um, in, it, it was Pesach and Tishrei, Nissan and Tishrei. So we went and, and we used to go, and uh, sadly, I, I share with you that I didn't always go. I mean, this is how blase we were. There was no question, there was no, nobody could even conceive of Gimel Tamils. It was just, um, that just wasn't on the radar at all forever. And so, you know, once you've been once, twice, four times, and it's expensive and it's difficult, and you have to leave your business and et cetera. So it, I kick myself when I think of it, but, but I, sent friends instead of, instead of us. So anyway, one time when we went, and before the Yechidison, the Rebbe used to 
say a sicker, and everybody was armed with a machine put in your ear, and there were translators to every language on the planet. And um, so the Rebbe gave it, told us, said a sicker, and in that sicker, basically, to summarize it very quickly, there's a God, he's a create, he creates everything, everything therefore is controlled. In, as Hashem is bringing everything into existence every moment, that is what Hashkoka Protus is because it, it involves control. And you as businessmen who've come here think that when you go back home, um, your encounters uh, have an aspect of randomness, which if you think about it for a moment is absurd. So not only what you will be doing, but who you meet and when you meet them and where you meet them is all specific to you, specific to your avoider. And, uh, and when you go back, you should bear that in mind and, and remember that we in our um, moral imperatives to the world, I don't think they're ever used that word. I think that's by the late Jonathan Sachs's word, Rip, but, uh, and be an example to everybody and be very careful to, to answer any questions truthfully. Okay, so I had the seeker, we had the, the Achittus. Uh, I, I won't tell you about the Achittus, but we, we flew back to Sydney. That was the first shelf. Now, I'd, I'd like to rule a line under that, we do the second shelf. I used to act for a guy called Bob Driver, also a false name. Bob Driver was a then 52, 53-year-old larrikin who made a fortune. Um, he was just muzzledick in everything that he did, and it, he, he, was, he worked in property. Um, he made a lot of money, didn't work very hard, played... Um, golf very, very well, played bridge very, very badly, um, and did property deals where one after the other, somehow or other, he made a fortune on all of them. He's a very good client because he made a lot of, he had a lot of transactions. So he comes into my office one day, spitting blood, very upset, shaking with fury. Why? because he'd been, um, he's been charged with bribery. And whatever else he was, Bob wasn't, as far as I knew, a criminal. So, and he was terribly upset. So the story unfolded. He had bought a building in the snow country, which was, which was controlled by the Snowy Mountain Authority, which is an Australian local government authority. And he needed permission to convert them into separate uh, uh, units, into separate apartments. And the, 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 the permission wasn't forthcoming. So he got on a plane and flew down and paid a man, Johnson, $200. This was in the early 80s. Uh, so he paid him $200 uh, and that probably wasn't enough because Mr. Johnson 
promptly reported him and he was charged with bribery. The charge sheet obligingly pointed out that the maximum sentence for this um, Avera is five years in prison. And he was beside himself. So he said to me, I don't care what it costs, get me the best lawyer in the country. And if I don't win this and I go to jail, your practice isn't worth two, two cents. So I ignored the, uh, the, the threat because I understood that he was very upset. And anyway, he was a very good client of mine, but I didn't do any criminal law. I didn't do any criminal work. So, but I couldn't afford to send him elsewhere because um, I would be worried he would, uh, he'd stay there. So I didn't know what to do. So I decided to ring Brian Rimbaud. So I ringed this Brian, who's now by now 20 years after we left law school, a famous QC, probably one of the most famous QCs in the country. Um, and I said, the, I told him the story. And he, he said, dear boy, you're joking. You want me to go into a criminal court? Uh, you have to understand that he was in the equity courts. The criminal courts is like the, the garbage tin. So I explained my dilemma that he was my best client. I really needed this. Please help me. And I reminded him of the favor that I'd done him at law, at law school, which really benefited him greatly. And I said, I'm calling in the favor. I need your help. I'm begging you, please represent him. So Brian said he made a last ditched effort to get rid of me and said, but I'm $10,000 a day. $10,000 a day in 1982 is like $100,000 today. So I go back to Bob and I tell him that he, he says, is he the best lawyer in the country? I said, he's the best I know. But it's, I'm sorry to tell you that he, he wants $10,000 for the day. So driver says, I don't care about the $10,000. If that's if if you say he's the best, let's go. So it's fixed. That's the second shelf. The third shelf is we go to Cogra Court of Petty Sessions. Now I have to try and describe to you what Cogra Court of Petty Sessions is like. It's like a huge toilet. It's it's populated by thieves, petty thieves, petty rapists. Um, little drug dealers, the, the dregs of society. And as we walk in, the magistrate that didn't even deserve a judge, the magistrate is a guy we were at law school with, who's now a real sad sack sitting there. And he sees Brian come in with me and he, he almost stands up for Brian. That's how, that's how incongruous Brian's presence was in this court. Anyway, he apologizes profusely, but the, we, we had to, the, it had to wait, we had to wait one hour because there were other cases in front of us, etc. So Brian says to me, let's go for a walk. And then turns to Bob and says, you'll have to wait here. I need to discuss this case with my instructing solicitor. So poor Bob who's paying $10,000 a day is left behind and I go for a walk with Brian. So Brian says to me, I hear you've just come back from New York. Holidays? 
So I'm about to say yes, and I remember this sicker from the river. So now I'm not an evangelist, so I'm not going to start teaching him Torah. But on the other hand, the, the sicker the river said was very clear. You have to answer all the questions, you have to answer them. So I said, I answered him and I said, no, I've just, I've been to see my river. Now, the world didn't open up, nothing happened, lightning didn't strike. He says, what's a river? So now is the moment of truth. What do I do for the next hour? Do I try and explain anything to him? So I decided, you know, you're thinking on one foot as you're walking. So I decided I will answer any questions he asks, but I won't volunteer anything. Anyway, I needn't have worried because he just was relentless. He wanted to know what a Rebbe was, what Torah was, what Moishan the Sinai was, why did I become religious? Why am I now wearing a beard and a yarmulke? Why do I go to a Rebbe? What does that give me? What, 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 what do you gain out of it? What, what? And then, and then uh, sooner or later, we were talking about miracles and, and uh, brockers, not, not miracles, brockers from the Rebbe. And he was very interested in that. And, he, and to cut a long story short, wouldn't leave me alone backwards and forwards, uphill and down dale. He wanted to know everything. We get back to court. We're called. He wins the case in 20 minutes. Have I got time to tell you how very quickly? Very quickly, he puts Johnson in the, wit in the witness box and the smoothest cross-examination you can ever imagine. He asks him, how, how old he is, what he married, children, keen gardener, this, that. And slowly he's relaxing, relaxing, relaxing. And Brian re remarks that he seems very precise. And this Johnson's very proud of that. Oh, yeah, very precise. He's very precise. So Brian says to him, um, I wonder if you are so precise, would you happen to remember um, when Bob Driver gave you the money. He said, oh, yes, of course, it was 1.11 p.m. or 1.10 p.m. And, and uh, Brian said, are you sure? He said, yes, I'm sure. He said, um, how, how do you know? He said, well, I was very hungry. It was, it was past my lunchtime. So, so Brian calls for the charge sheet and asks him to examine it and asks him to look at what time the stamp of approval was put on the document by the, the Snowy Mountains Authority. And he, he reads the time and it was 12.40. He says, are you sure that's the time? He says, yes. So Brian says, thanks, no, no more questions. And he sends, and he goes down and he turns to the magistrate and he says, the money was given after the approval, therefore it's a present, not a bribe. It would only be a bribe if it was given before the approval. Anyway, the magistrate agreed, threw the case out of court. Bob Driver was ecstatic, um, and we all and and we go back flushed with success and happy and so on. The next shelf, I get to the office, and there's a message for me. Please ring. Brian Rimbound urgently. So I ring Brian, Brian, 
And he says, listen, old man, dear boy, is how he used to talk. Listen, dear boy, I have a question. Would your holy man in New York give one of these brokers, that's how he pronounced broker, give one of these brokers to a Gentile? So I said, look, you know what? I've never been asked the question. I have no idea. I'll find out and I'll come back to you. And I ring my very good friend at, at the time, who still is, Rabbi Philman, who's the Shliak in Sydney. And I ask him, um, I ask him the question. And smilingly down the phone, I hear Rabbi Philman reply, what, are you suggesting that you need to be the Rebbe's censor? So I'm duly humbled and I, I say, thank you, I hang up and I ring Brian back and I, I say, why not write? But I warn you that the, the Rebbe doesn't always reply. In fact, he seldom replies. So Brian says, ha, dear boy, I'll write on my QC letterhead. Of course, he'll reply. So I think, good luck. But uh, anyway, he, he writes. And before he writes, the story unfolds from him that the reason he needs the Broca is that tragically, they had, he married a, a, an actress called Violet, a very beautiful woman. And they had three children, they were teenagers, and the middle one died. And they were trying to replace that child and she'd fallen pregnant. Um, and, uh, but she was over 40 by then. And obsessed with the idea that the child would be born um, deformed in some way. And she fell into a terribly deep depression to the point that she couldn't get out of bed. She was so, she was so sick with depression that she, she was just non-functioning. So what Brian wanted was a, a broker from the river that she and the baby would be all right. Anyway, he wrote, about 10 days later, I get a phone call from him and he says, um, dear boy, I just wanted you to know that I got the broker. So I said, Brian, that's marvelous. The river replied. He said, of course he replied. I wrote on letterhead. I mean, he said, so I said, would you mind telling me the content of the letter? I don't want to be intrusive, but would you mind? So he says, uh, no, 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 dear boy, of course I wouldn't mind. And, and he then proceeded to read me the letter, which was in English. And um, basically the letter said that the baby would be born in the proper time and, and she had nothing to worry about and the baby will be healthy and she'll be well. And, and then the second paragraph was that um, it would be appropriate um, if you were to... Uh, affix a charity box in your house and use it regularly. So now I don't know what to do. And I, so I say to Brian, look, I feel obliged to tell you that we, when we write to the river, we, and we get a, a broca and an instruction, we know that the, the broca is conditional on the instruction. So I don't want to, tell you what to do but it would be if it would be important to try and follow that instruction 
So there's a silence. And then Brian says to me, dear boy, the first thing I did when I got this letter was to go out and to buy the biggest charity box I could find. And I've nailed it to the barrister, uh, to the banister in our entrance hall, where I will use it every day of my life. So I think, wow. And now I made a big mistake, guys. I said, how is your wife? And there's this stone silence, dwarfing the last silence. And he says, Robert, how can you ask me that? And I'm feeling, I'm feeling Bittle Bermatius at the moment, right? How can you ask me that? He said, of course, what happened was that the day I got the letter, Violet jumped out of bed and said that this is ridiculous. Hopefully we'll have a girl because we had boys before and I can do this and everything's going to be fine. Let's decorate the nursery. And that's the, that's, that's the story. Now, I don't need, I, I see it's 6.28 and I have to stop in one minute, but I, I, I want to share one thing with you. I'm sure nobody who's listening to this, because we're all in Chabad, no one will make Kremnaz's mistake and, uh, and ask what happened. And I will tell you that, that Violet's daughter is now beautiful, married with three children. So that's the river's reach.